I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Cabin fever has started to set in as we spill over into the second half of the lockdown. Every day is Groundhog Day. You thought this would be the opportunity to write the great South African novel, but instead you spend hours reading COVID-19 worst-case scenarios, taking your temperature every seven minutes, and fixating on the rising number of worldwide infections. We're traveling into the heart of the lockdown to bring you I'm a Booker Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, a short and sweet distraction from the pandemic, because what you need to do right now is relax, stay at home, and avoid the coronavirus like the plague. Author's lockdown, T-5. In 1987, Paul Morris went to Angola. He was a young soldier who had been conscripted into the South African Defence Force as it waged a brutal bush war against its neighbours. For 25 years, Angola was the country of Paul's nightmares. He returned to Angola in 2012. This time he wasn't a 20-year-old soldier, in an army's armored buffle. He was a middle-aged man on a bicycle. He cycled 1,500 kilometers across the country to witness Angola in peacetime, to enjoy the beauty of the bush, and to meet the people who live there. In Back to Angola, his memoir published in 2014, Paul writes about a journey that took him back into the past as well as into the present. Today, Paul is in double quarantine, after undertaking a different kind of journey, this time not on a bike and not to exorcise the demons of war, but on a small sailboat to Brazil. Paul's short story, Slow Road to the Windberg Hotel, was published in Hotel Africa, the short story day Africa collection, which is on the shelves now. Paul, welcome to Amabuka Booker. Can you read an extract from your short story? Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, so this short story is set um, in the Karoo, and uh, there's a guy hitchhiking. Uh, we don't know the reason yet. Um, uh, his car's broken down, and he's standing outside the small town of Three Sisters. And he's just got into a um, smoking old Toyota Taz with two dodgy characters with, um, with uh, prison tattoos. And so we take up the story. And there's another hitchhiker with him that he doesn't know that's also got in the car. So we take up the story as they are driving. The smoke and the collapsed backseat contrived with the lack of space to keep him awake. Next to him, the other hitcher was still looking out of his window. So what happens in Three Sisters, Jake's asked him. Sorry? Three Sisters, what's it like to live there? I don't know. I don't stay in Three Sisters. Oh, I thought I just slept there last night. Okay, like at a hotel or B&B or something. Do they even have stuff like that in Three Sisters? With a woman, skinny man turned in his seat, fag in hand, gold tooth displayed in a grin. Hey, my bra, you scored in three sisters. His laughter was full of phlegm. Jakes ignored him. Do you have a girlfriend there? He said to the other, his, to the other hitcher. No, not a girlfriend. The other hitcher looked out of the window again. Nay, not a girlfriend, skinny persisted. Just a hot little carousissy looking for a piece of the big city. Maybe she wanted to learn some new moves funny car path, ne? His laughter sounded like dirt and bad intentions. She was nice. She was in a bucky I got a lift in. She was very nice, very friendly. Yeah, said Skinny, very friendly, Vafi, that one. And the two of you made lack of politics in a nice warm Karoo bed, ne? Yeah. 
Skinny reached down between his feet and came up with a quarter black label. He opened it with his teeth, took a long swig and passed it to the driver. So what do you do for a living then, Jakes said to the other hitcher. I'm unemployed. Bummer, Jake shook his head. The car drifted into the oncoming lane as the driver tilted his head back to take a slug of beer. What did you do before? I was in Sun City. You're in the hotel business, cool. <laughs> Skinny and the big guy laughed and Skinny turned in his seat again to, to look at the other hitcher. The big guy studied him in the rearview mirror. The hitcher went on looking out of his window. What are you in for? asked Skinny. Murder, said the hitcher, still watching the vast crew scroll by. Jake looks from Skinny to the man next to him and back again. Hey, Brew, what do you mean murder? You said you worked at Sun City with the casinos and golf and topless dancing chicks and shit. The laughter in the front seat got out of control. The car weaved and the driver shoved the quart bottle between his thighs so he could steer and wipe his eyes at the same time. Yarr, said the big guy. If they had topless cherries at Sun City, the murder rate, murder rate would go through the roof. He turned to Skinny and, how's this, Lonnie? Different planet or what? They laughed again. Planet Whitey. Yeah, Planet Whitey. Good one, my bro. Jake's frowned. It's a prison. Sun City is what they call Johannesburg Correctional Facility, said the other hitcher. Oh, said Jake's. He turned to look out of his own window. He thought about the 26th tattoo. He wondered who the man next to him had murdered. Skinny wound down his window and tossed the quart bottle into the scrub. There you go. Oh, thanks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was uh, in the Karoo with, uh, with them. Um, <laughs> but let's go from the Karoo to Angola. I want to know why did you choose to undertake your journey on a bicycle? Yeah, it was a, it was a long, it was kind of a long thought out process. Um, I'd arrived back in South Africa after spending some years working in London. I had a bit of time on my hands and there hadn't really been peace in Angola to go, you know, for me to go back there. And I was thinking about going back and, um, and I sort of thought, well, I want to see the country slowly. I want to, you know, it's, it's too big. The distances I wanted to cover were too big to walk, which would have been the, probably the first option. Um, I mean, I could have taken a, a four by four, but I just thought that would distance myself from my own experience and from the people. And it, and it just, you know, the, uh, it just would have been a totally different experience. And um, in London, the bicycle had been my primary sort of trans source of transport. I'd been you know, shopping and commuting to work. And so I was kind of quite in tune with, with cycling and bicycles. So I thought this is a nice, slow way um, to, to, to get around the country and it's easy to meet people on a bicycle. And, and that all sort of turned out, turned out to be. During your journey, you met Roberto, a Cuban who had been on the other side of the battle in 1987. Can you tell us about this meeting and what impact it had on you? Sure. That that was probably the most profound human meeting I've had in my life, and I think that's saying. I mean, that's saying quite a lot. Um, so we we we. I just arrived in Quito. I hadn't started cycling yet. I'd been taken there by a man named Patrick Ricketts, who's a former MK um, uh, fighter, and uh, he had connections in Angola. So he drove me up there to start my bicycle ride in Quito. And I think it was probably the, f we were only there for a night or two before I started cycling. And I think it was probably the first night, the, somebody that we was, that we were, that we met when we were in Quito um, was in a relationship with one of the Cubans and the, there's a Cuban camp there and they're busy. Um, they were busy rebuilding the airport. So one of them was having a, a birthday party and we were invited. 
So um, I found myself sitting next to this um, this Cuban guy, um, about the same age as me at the time. About I was I was forty five at the time, and um, he was about similar age. But I mean, I don't speak any Spanish, and um, he didn't speak any English, and so conversation was limited to you know, smiles and gestures. But anyway, we started we started trying to tell each other when we'd last been in Angola, and I I was very nervous at the time because I was you know I was aware of the sensitivities of the fact that I'm a you know former South African soldier who invaded Angola in, in '87 and. And uh, didn't want to you know, didn't want to stand out too much at that point. Uh, I was still very nervous at the beginning of my trip. But anyway, uh, I started um, by writing dates in the sand, 1987, and then today's date, and showing him that this was my this was my first time back to Angola since the war. Turned out that that he'd been in, in Angola for three years. He'd been with an anti aircraft group, from what I could work out. And as I say, this is all without language. This is all with gestures and sign language and and writing and things in the sand. But it but it turned out that he'd been there too. And when I when I told him that I'd been in Angola at the same time as he had been in Angola, we looked at each other, and it's it's really hard to it's really hard to explain. I think I probably do it better in the written words somehow. But but just we just looked into each other's eyes. There was so much emotion between us in that moment it's like the rest of the world just disappeared in that in that moment and it only lasted a few seconds but i could see by the look on his face that he knew how important it was and how emotional it was for me to be back in this in this place that i'd fought um 20 odd years before because he'd come back himself and arrived back here himself and had his own moment uh, and and the, the fact, you know, me seeing that understanding in his eyes and, and it didn't need words. It was like, as I say, it was deeply profound and the communication was so um, beyond words and beyond language. And, and in fact, I've said since that I think actually language would have, we would never have got here with language. Language would have ruined it. Um, as men, we often find it difficult to communicate emotions. And so we didn't need to communicate it with words, with these inadequate words. And so just just this look in each other's eyes that just told us the whole story. And it, it lasted moments. And then, you know, in the background, the music, the music was, um, I don't know, good Latin American music going on. And the next thing they were up dancing again and it was over. But it was such a deeply touching moment. And it's, it's really hard to describe it. So I think in the book, I describe it the best I've tried since and before, but, but that was the, you know, it was the passage that I think um, sums up the entire, my entire journey actually is summed up in that, in that passage. Sure. So many of the conscripts who went into the SADF suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and battle with the scars of having been involved in South Africa's border wars, but they suffer in silence. Was this book cathartic for you? I mean, this book was part of a process, Jonathan. Um, so the book, by the time I sat down and wrote the book, the work had been done. So the catharsis, um, you know, being part of it, that had all been done already. Um, so the journey, the journey for me, I mean, obviously it started as, as soon as, you know, they flew us out of Angola, uh, back to Rundi. But in a way, the, the, the realization that I had emotional work to do came years later. I was in London. I was in my probably mid to late 30s. And I was retraining to be a psychotherapist. 
And so I was in therapy for every week for nearly five years um, as a compulsory part of, of my training. And it was during the course of that training that I, that I realized that there were a lot of emotional leftovers that I hadn't even realized were there. And um, the realization came in a, in a therapy session where I didn't bring up the war. I, didn't, I hardly brought up the war at all in therapy. Um, such, so, so buried was it, was the emotional response to it. But, I, but I, was having, I was having a series of nightmares that were just recurring every so often, and there'd be like three or four nights in a row. And it wasn't war. There weren't war nightmares. There were. There was. It's more like a night terror, waking up, shouting with somebody in the room, and that kind of thing. And I had this session with my therapist. And anyway, it's in. It's. It's. It goes into detail in the book. But but it came out that there was an awful lot of leftover from the war. And for me, a lot of it was kind of grief, mostly for all the, the death and dying and killing, um, rather than anything specific. And so that, that sort of, I, I dealt with that in, in therapy and felt a lot better afterwards. But then when I got back to South Africa, having thought I'd dealt with it, thought, let me go back and just do this journey and turn my map of Angola from a war map into a peace map, as I, as I, as I, as I wrote. And, um, and only when I arrived back in Quito, after that meeting with, with Roberto, that we um, that I realised. I mean, I drove back to our to our accommodation, and and I and I cried and cried in the back seat of the Land Rover in the dark. I just and, and I couldn't figure out why. It was just a release. So that was the, that was the catharsis, this release that I realised finally I'd met the enemy, um, or one of one of the people who who'd fought on the other side and put a human face um, to you know in inverted commas the enemy and and made peace. We both kind of you know just a peacemaking conversation as much as anything um and then the bike ride sort of gradually helped me process that experience uh, and then and the book was really just recording it i mean i think there was no real emotional response to writing the book in in a cathartic sense it was just a, it was really good to record it it was get it good to get it down so that when people asked me i could say well it's all there you know family i tried to tell over the years but no one you know they found it really hard to hear i think i found it really hard to explain what what was going on because I didn't really know myself, but once it was all down in the book, um, you know, it's kind of like it's out, it's out there. I've told my story, and and then it was all over. And from Angola on a, a sailboat to Brazil, how did uh, how did this <laughs> adventure happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've been sailing. I've been sailing on and off for for a while. I sailed in the UK for a while with a mate, and then when I got back here, I started sailing again. Anyway, this is a this is a, f- a friend of mine um, who's who's uh, who owns the boat. Who's who's you know he's he's taking off for a few years to go cruising, and um, um, uh, him and, and three of us were helping him to crew his crew his boat to Brazil via Saint Helena, and then he was his wife was going to fly out and meet him, and then they're going off to um, Caribbean and, and onwards from there. So um, we were just helping him take the boat across, and of course. Um, I just, <laughs> it was probably not the best decision given that corona, the coronavirus thing was looming. I hadn't quite shut everywhere down yet, but, you know, so maybe it was a bad idea to go, but I'm a bit of a sucker for an adventure, as you might have gathered. And, and so, <laughs> so off we went and, and we didn't get to Brazil, obviously, because everything closed down while we were en route when we called into to literates and then decided actually St. Helena was then closed and Brazil was closed and... So our adventure changed course, and we came we came back to Cape Town. So you'd already been stuck on a 
boat with just four people. So you, you, you've come from a lockdown, in a sense, into another lockdown. Yeah, I mean, we were we arrived in we arrived in Namibia, and the immigration people said, "Don't you don't you know what's going on in the world?" <laughs> um, so we were we were pretty much sat on our boat there, um, and then um, uh, turned we turned around, and and once we made the decision, we we turned around to come back. So we spent we spent you know well over a week um, sailing back to Cape Town because we we're against the prevailing winds and against the the swell. Um, so it takes a long time to get back, and then and then we arrived back only to be told that. We're not being credited for uh, a week at sea. Plus, um, in our 14-day quarantine, we have to start 14-day quarantine from scratch. So that's what I'm doing now, sitting in quarantine, <laughs> waiting. <laughs> what, what, is be, what is this sort of process, being in lockdown and quarantine, taught you about yourself? Have there been any lessons that you've learned about yourself? Uh, nothing I didn't already know, Jonathan. I mean, <laughs> I've done a lot of um, solo traveling and, and obviously, you know, different experiences from army to hitchhiking to uh, to other things. So yeah, so it's just I know that that I can be very patient and I can spend time alone. So it's not, you know, it's not that. I think it's just the enforced um, loss of liberty, which is which is not so nice. But you know, these days with, I mean, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you via the hotel's Wi-Fi, and I've been writing a blog and. I've got a I've got a manuscript of a novel that's just about finished, which as the days draw by, I'll be able to immerse myself in to keep myself busy. I've also discovered that I can do um, some exercise by doing step ups onto the <laughs> to the hotel chair and and sit ups and various things. So yeah, so I keep myself occupied and have occasionally illicit chats across the corridor with my crewmates. Who is the one person in the world that you would hate to be in lockdown with? <laughs> Um, well, it's funny because it's probably my, my German Shepherd cross as opposed to a person because my wife is at home with this, this dog that needs nearly two hours of walks a day, twice a day to, to keep it from, you know, tearing the house apart. So, <laughs> so that's so, so probably Biggle, Biggles, is, Biggles is my wife's lockdown with him at the moment. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of half glad I'm not there <laughs> to, to deal with him. <laughs> now, sound effects, Rorschach test. Well, that sounds like a certain crewmate of mine across the corridor. He's he's going a bit berserk, and every now and he pokes his head out and makes weird sounds. He was howling like the wolf earlier, so that that's definitely that's definitely Andy. Now that sounds a bit like uh, one of those Vietnam era helicopters, and so I'm. I'm very tempted to run out onto the roof and and um, wave both hands above my head to get uh, to get picked up Saigon style. So that's the airport. I don't want to go anywhere near right now because I don't want to end up in quarantine somewhere else. It's <laughs> the sound of my brain after another five days of this. <laughs> Well, that that does take me back to my last trip to Angola, staying in in villages, um, being invited into people's homes and given a hut to sleep in at night, fairly regularly, and that was that was a very common sound in the morning waking me up. <laughs> um, that's um, that's me rewinding back to uh, three and a half weeks ago, where I might have made a different decision and stayed at home. <laughs> <laughs> 
So good luck, Paul. Um, we hope that uh, you continue to polish your manuscript and that we get to read it. When is it out? W- what's happening with it? Um, well, I've got to I've got to finish, and then I've got to get down to some polishing, and then I've got to see whether my my editor um, would be interested, or any of his colleagues would be interested in it, and, and then we'll take it from there. Thank you for listening to Amma Booker Booker, the Quarantine Chronicles, live from the lockdown. You can subscribe to I'm a Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured, email jonathan.anser at gmail.com. I'm a Booker Booker. I'm a Booker.